Hey there, and welcome to Inside Intercom. I'm Liam Geraghty. You know, we have over 300 episodes of the podcast. This is episode 330, but who's counting? And there are so many brilliant interviews and discussions. So today I thought we'd dip into that archive to revisit our interview with Slack's VP of product, Ali Rail. At the time of this interview, Ali was Slack's head of global customer experience, and Slack hadn't yet been acquired by Salesforce. That acquisition was completed last year. Ali sat down to chat with former Intercom editor Adam Risman and shared her lessons learned from Slack's early days, the unconventional way she measures her team's performance, how her team promotes knowledge sharing and much more. If you like what you hear, just follow us on your favorite podcast app and that way you'll never be out of the loop. And now let's hop into the studio with Slack's Ali Rail. Ali, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. So at the time you arrived at Slack, I believe the company was less than 10 employees. So to get us started here, take us back. What was your day-to-day like in those early days? And were you developing the support experience there from day one? What were you working on? So um, when I joined Slack, we were actually called something else. Um, I joined back when we were tiny spec. We were a video game company. Uh, I was uh, employee number 43, I think. And we were still working on a video game, which was called Glitch. I had been there for about two months when we decided to shut down the video game, and that's when we cut forces and ended up with about eight people, which was actually, like, incredibly difficult. People had, you know, poured their hearts into this game for three years, and suddenly we're like, we're just not going to do the game anymore. So I had joined the game as the director of QA, and my background is in software engineering, specifically around automated testing tools and then, you know, testing itself. So for the first, you know, four to six months of writing Slack, most of my job was testing it. And, you know, of course, at the very beginning, it was just a bunch of APIs and a very, very rough UI. So most of my testing was actually on the back end. We started rolling out to friends and family, and then we started rolling out to, you know, more of an outer circle of friends and family. And as we got customers, they needed support. And throughout my career, no matter what my title was or my role was, I had always been working with customers, like I had always done support. So I just raised my hand and said, I can do that. Because at the time with the eight of us, we had Stuart, our CEO, we had six engineers and me. So um, it just sort of became an obvious thing that I could pick up. And uh, here we are today. And today you're the head of global customer experience for Slack. Quite a a lofty title there. It's quite a title. (laughs) So how does Slack define the customer experience team? Is supports there obviously? Is QA still part of that? Is sales part of that equation? What fits under this umbrella? Um, A lot of things fit under the umbrella. So QA has actually moved over into engineering, but um, under the customer experience umbrella is support. Uh, We also handle all the support on the Twitter account. Um, we do the app directory, so we're doing all the reviews and publishing of apps to our app directory. We do developer support, so if you write in needing help with the app you're building or our API, that's our team helping you. We're doing translation for um, the entire company as we work on internationalizing wow. our product. And um, we also do all the help center content, so everything on the get.slack.help site is us. And we're working on user education as well. So no matter where you are when you come to Slack, like how sophisticated a user you are or what your role is, um, we would like to help you understand how to use Slack better and you know turn you into an expert who's really comfortable and confident with our tool. Well, as you said, support has sort of been your, your baby through all these different titles mm-hmm. you've had. And I want to get into the all the different ways you run your team and how mm-hmm. it's structured in just a minute. But taking a step back, a lot of our listeners are very early stage startups. They're making their first couple of 
support hires. Mm-hmm. Um, you were essentially Slack's first support hire. So what did you do in those early months after this pivot? You're working with customers that you would repeat, or is there anything you would possibly avoid? Um, one thing that we did is we got aggressive and optimistic about our support infrastructure. So one thing that I think is tempting when you're early stage is to say, well, we don't have a lot of customers. We don't really need a super robust support tool or support experience. And it's very easy to look at the pricing models and be like, this one is very cheap. It will serve our purposes for now. But the thing is that you are gathering all sorts of intelligence about your customers, how people feel about your product, what you need to iterate on through that support tool. Like this is your primary feedback mechanism on the thing that you're building. So when it does take off, when you do get a lot of traction, that is the absolute worst time to go, oh man, our support tool isn't really up to snuff. And now like we're super busy and we have to migrate all this data. That's bad. So um, I kind of got aggressive about that pretty early on and migrated us to a you know more robust support experience before things really took off, which has paid off super well for us. Um, another thing that worked really well was just defining what it meant for a customer to interact with Slack. Because at the time, like, we didn't have marketing, we weren't doing a lot of PR. Uh, like, if you weren't interacting with our product, the only other opportunity you had to interact with Slack as a brand was through the support experience. So a lot of this was trying to understand what are the expectations that people have from using the product that we need to mirror in the experience they're having with our support team. Like, how does a support experience feel authentically Slack? How does it fit in with the thing that they're using every day? And one of my early realizations was, like, and this is, so company-wide, we figured out um, we are asking an enormous amount of people. Like, not only are we asking a single individual at a company to try our product, we're asking them to get buy-in from all the people around them to change how they communicate. You know, like we're asking them to get off email, we're asking them to switch tools, whatever it is. We're asking for an enormous amount of trust. And part of upholding our end of that bargain is being the trustworthy partner on the other side. So that person who really put themselves out there, the person who's you know, in some cases, their reputation within their company depends on the success of Slack. Like, we want to support them. We want to be the person who's like, we got your back, we're behind you. If you have problems, we're totally here for you. So, so much of the initial support experience was really understanding what are we asking of customers and when they come to us, like, really, how dire is it? How important is it to them? Um it's like this is some pretty high stakes stuff. So we designed our support experience to support the business that we knew that we needed to build and not just the problems that our users had. So when you're setting that up, did you have to create a strict voice and tone for what support at Slack was? Or did you let agents as they came on board feel that out for themselves? Um, there's a little mixture of both. So when we are hiring people, we actually have them do a writing test Um One thing about Slack is that it feels very, the product itself, it feels very friendly. We have tried to make it feel conversational itself because it is a conversation tool. And part of weaving the brand experience throughout support is to make sure that we are upholding our end of the bargain on the, like, this is your friendly conversational tool. So in that writing test, we do look for people who feel like humans when they're writing. Um, You know, it's like, this is an interesting person who's answering my support question, not just, you know, somebody cranking out macros. What type of prompts do you give them there? 
Um, we actually sanitize a few questions that we've gotten from customers. We also give them all the like factual information that they'd need to solve it. We're like, give us your answer. So when we're doing that, we're not looking for a specific tone or voice. We're looking for someone who can write well, who can express themselves well, and who really comes across as an empathetic human in the process. And everything else is just like tweaks around the edges. So somebody has that natural predilection towards fantastic written communication, then it's very easy to be like, okay, you use this word, instead we use this word, or use I language, instead we use we language. Like that stuff is very, very easy to train. It's so, all the finer details. Yeah, the fine details we train when they get in-house, but um, either you can or you can't write in a very conversational tone. And one thing that's interesting now that I'm starting to research is how does this conversational tone translate to other cultures? So in the U.S. and in Canada, it's obviously fine. You know, we're like, hey, we're just people hanging out, talking about right. problems with our software product. How does that translate to Japan, for example? Um, so this is, these are some of the things that we're yeah, researching. That's, that's fascinating. How do, yeah. you, how do you localize the support experience where certain metaphors or euphemisms you use just don't just don't work or yeah. people speak to each other on the street in a much different way than they would here. Exactly. Like in Japan, it's a very hierarchical structure and we don't want to come in and insert ourselves as like, you know, higher than the person writing in because we definitely aren't and we don't want to come in too low and make ourselves seem unable to help. Uh, so this is a lot of what we're figuring out. We did the initial revision of this on our help center, which we just translated into um French, German, and Japanese. We have Spanish coming out soon. And the first part of translating the Help Center was actually coming up with a style guide. So we didn't dig in and just, you know, start translating stuff. We did a lot of thought around, like, what does Slack sound like in French? Who is Slack in French? Who is Slack to the French customer? So we are developing um, a style guide that is used now as we translate the rest of the product. We're using it product-wide. It's uh, that's, that's something we're working towards. Yeah. So... We talked a little bit about the writing tests you give mm -hmm. um, employees as you're hiring them. But once they're on board, there's something that you've been doing for quite a while that I'm really excited to talk to you about, which is something you call the no numbers philosophy. Mm -hmm. It's I think it's pretty safe to say it's quite different than the industry norm for how a lot of support managers mm -hmm. may manage their team's performance. So can you walk me through the thinking behind this, what exactly it is and why it's been ultimately so effective for you? Sure. Um, there are a few pieces of it. So one is... Like as humans, as people, we thrive at our work when we have a lot of autonomy. So if you give someone the information, tools, skills, resources, like everything they need to do, do their job well, and you let them run off and do their best work, then it is going to be much more deeply gratifying. And when someone feels good about the work that they're doing, not only does it um, cascade to all those around them, but customers can feel it as well. So you can just tell when a happy person is helping you. So one part of it is let's give people the autonomy that they need to decide what needs to happen for the customer. And if a customer needs a half hour of attention instead of five minutes, give them that half hour. If a customer needs, you know, ongoing work over two or three weeks on something, let's give that time to them. So I never want to constrain someone's work by telling them that they have a strict a amount of time or a quota or you know, anything like that. The other thing about quotas, which is interesting, is that they assume a team that is always behind. So if you're going to tell a team of five people that they have to do 30 tickets a day, then you know that you'll always have more than 150 tickets in the queue that day, which is a terrible state to be in because that is the bucket that you can never clear out 
Um, you're never catching up. You're always behind. And one thing that I wanted to do is like, we want to zero out the queue as much as possible. And we often do it several times a day where there's just nothing there. And you can't have a quota if you don't reliably have a huge backlog for people to work against. So just fundamentally, the way we run our team and the expectations we have our, of ourselves for getting back to customers quickly and clearing things out rapidly, like a quota system simply doesn't fit because we could run into a situation where it's like, well, everyone failed their quota today because we just didn't have enough work for you to do. So sorry you're all about terrible. that. <laughs> yeah, like, sorry, you failed. Which won't it's, bleed into the customer experience then at all. Exactly. And then there's the flip side as well, which is if I say, okay, everybody's got to do 30 tickets today and we have a very busy day. So for example, when we release a new feature like custom status, which we released a couple of weeks ago, our volume spikes. Like we have a ton of work to do, but if I tell everyone like 30 tickets, that's your goal, then they're like, well, got my 30 tickets, Clock I'm out of here. And yeah, I don't think anyone on my team would do this right. because they're fantastic, like everybody takes a lot of ownership, but the success criteria for those days is higher than on a, a normal day. So. Quotas just don't work for the way that we run our team and the way that we approach the volume of work to be done. We try to normalize the team on, you know, here is roughly the amount of work coming in today. You collectively are all responsible for doing it. And as people, we are pretty adept at adjusting how quickly we do things based on the amount of time that we have. So like if you think about moving house, if you know that you have a month to go, you know, you are like carefully packing all the glass, you're wrapping it in newspaper, you're tucking it in the box, you're labeling the box with like my Star Wars glass. Like, you know everything. But same thing, like if you have one day left, you're just like, screw it, I don't care about these glasses, like yep. wrap them up, get them out there. Somehow it always finds a way to get done. It's yes. just a matter of how you get to that point. Exactly. It always gets done. Um, but we are very good as humans at adjusting how quickly we work and how basically how well we work uh, based on the amount of time we have. So a lot of it is just situational awareness for people. Like here is roughly our work volume for the day. And then people begin to learn like, okay, that means this for me. Like maybe that means I go into do not disturb mode on Slack and just crank for an hour. Or maybe this means you know, on the other side, like, wow, I have a lot of time to take care of this thing that I wanted to learn. How large was your team when you put this type of thing in place, or did it simply evolve organically? It just evolved organically. I never have wanted a quota system. I generally don't think that that's a good way to manage people. Like, no matter, you know, in engineering, we talk about lines of code as being a completely terrible metric for measuring uh, quality or output of an engineer. And I think it's the same way for everybody. Once you just start looking at volumetric measures, a lot of autonomy is taken away, and autonomy is what gives us pride and joy in our craft. And ultimately at Slack, we are all craftspeople. We all sort of delight in the experience of executing on our craft to the best of our ability for the, you know, the good of the company and the customer. So it's evolved organically, but it's very, very rooted in the values that we have as a company. So those values don't change, but as your team grows, I think you guys are more than 100 support agents now. Is that right? Um, the overall customer experience team is 150, but that encompasses all the things all that things, I, yeah. yeah, but our uh, like direct support team is, uh, it's over 100 now. So say we have a listener who's wanting to put this philosophy in place very early, but is on sort of this path of growth, right? What type of things do they need to adjust when they get to the, say, 100 people on the team? Things 
break many different intervals. And what we've learned is that we don't know exactly when they'll break and we don't know why, but we do know that they will. So we engineer our processes so that they'll last for six to nine months and we're not precious about them. We don't dig in and spend months on them. We're just like, okay, this is no longer working. Let's build a thing that will work for now and let's try to anticipate what's going to happen for a little while and then we'll throw it away and start fresh again. So one thing that we emphasize a lot with the team is just proper like change management practices, which is constant awareness that things will change and it is a necessary and exciting part of being in a growing company. And, you know, do not get too attached to any one thing that's happening because the growth of our company will necessitate a difference. So a couple of the things that we've changed specifically, like early on, the product was smaller and the number of people were fewer. And it was both possible and necessary to know everything about everything and be able to answer questions regardless of topic. Mm As we grew, it's so that situational awareness I was talking about earlier, it's just very hard to get when you have 20 people working out of the same queue. And, you know, if you're new to the company and suddenly you have all of Slack to support, which is getting larger and larger, that just becomes an impossible task. So we split it up into specialty teams. So people now are experts in like the Mac app. And there's a small group of them doing that. So they have a lot of situational awareness on you know everyone around them and what they're doing. And it also gives people, especially new people, the opportunity to come in, master one thing and being like, I am doing excellent work. Like I have only been here for three months and I'm contributing and I feel like I'm part of the team. And like, this is an exciting job. So, and this is one of the things about growth is it's harder and harder, I think, to get onboarded to a growing company and understand, you know, how it functions, how all the pieces fit together, what all the people do. And so the more you can give people an opportunity, like a nice big soft handle for them to grab onto and just, you know, thrive, the better they're going to be in the long run, like for the company, because they're going to be like, I'm here, I'm succeeding, I want to do more. Just before we continue with today's episode, I wanted to let you know about Offscript. It's a new series of candid conversations with intercom leadership all about the extraordinary AI-driven transformation we're currently experiencing. Episode one is on our YouTube channel right now. Here's a teaser of what you can expect. I don't want to come across as overly dramatic, but for every single tech company, this is an adapt-or-die moment. It's inevitable that all businesses are going to go AI first. It's just a matter of time. In this post-AI world, new companies will rise, old companies will fall. Of course, some of these new companies will flame out. Some old companies will pivot successfully too. I don't think any of us could see a world where this wasn't going to be one of the biggest changes in the customer service landscape ever. The world we care about is customer service, and it's so patently obvious that the old way will be quickly obsolete. We're racing hard to build a future which will result in better experiences and results for customers and businesses too. It's not just a product change, it's a mindset change. Let's make space to talk about all of this. We have so much we want to share. We want to explore these ideas in the open. We want to provoke new ones in you. We want to learn from your reaction. You just click the kind of like big stupid go button, right, and see what happens. Welcome to Offscript. That's all to come on Offscript. The first episode is out now. You can watch it on Intercom's YouTube channel and we'll bring you audio versions of the episodes right here. 
Now, back to today's episode. You mentioned that tilt between generalists and specialists, mm-hmm. which is think, yeah common across all growing companies. You've certainly seen it here. How do you um, make sure that there are knowledge sharing measures in place for those specialists so the knowledge that they accrue just doesn't go into a silo? We have a lot of different mechanisms for this. So another thing that I really don't want to do is build a big team of managers. And one way that you avoid that is to make sure that as many people as possible are doing, you know, the information sharing, um, sort of the the task-based stuff that managers traditionally do. So we have a, each specialist team has a like aggregation of people and one we call the ambassador. They're the ones who work with the product managers to understand what features are coming up and also to give customer feedback to our product managers. We have the bug boss and they're the ones for knowing all of the outstanding bugs in their specialty area and working with product and engineering on prioritizing and getting fixes. We have, and specifically to your question, we have a learning specialist in each specialty group. They're responsible for um, all of our internal documentation about that area, making sure it's up to date as we update the product, and as needed, um, doing you know presentations or guided learnings or you know built, spinning up new courses or whatever for new parts of the product or you know just parts that people tend to struggle on. So we've distributed a lot of that down to the team itself. Which is great in a lot of ways. Like we don't have a lot of managers doing managery stuff. Like we all learn better when we do it ourselves. Like coming up with a training is a fantastic way to force you to learn something. And I really like the fact that people have opportunities to do things that aren't just grinding away at a support queue all day. Right. Or they have paths to progression that isn't just people management. Because you can it's not for everybody. You can be extremely, extremely talented, but just that not be the thing for you. Yeah. And we've focused on that company wide, which is how do we ensure that everybody has a path to grow that isn't just people management? Because the worst thing you want to do is promote someone into a people manager who doesn't want to manage people. So we're working on that company-wide. Just due to the breadth of scope of what CE does, there are a lot of interesting paths that people can go into, and more of those emerge all of the time. Like, for example, uh, with our enterprise product, which just came out in January, suddenly we have all sorts of pathways opening up that look more like customer success work or more like solutions engineering work than look like you know traditional customer experience work. So we work closely with um, the sales team on those sorts of things. So all of these options begin to emerge and people are able to learn and sort of exercise leadership qualities without actually having people that they manage. Has there been anyone or any companies in particular who have really inspired you in terms of the way that you've built the structure for your team? You know, it's, I probably shouldn't admit this. I didn't do any research. (laughs) I would say that I was most inspired by all of the things that I hate about seeking support myself and simply by the way that we run our company. Um, So much of this has just been, what do we not want to replicate and what do we need to amplify? And that's how our support experience has been built. It's funny with tooling, so many you know, like industry standard learnings are actually baked into the tools themselves. And you kind of pick up like, ah, oh, this feature exists because this is how people do it. You get sort of like a lot of osmotic learning without ever talking to people. So I would say that, you know, there are a lot of product managers who have done that research and sort of baked it into a tool for me, which is awesome. It's something that we're going to start looking at more, though, as we move up market into enterprise and as we move to different, you know, international markets. Like, 
what does support look like there? Because I'm super comfortable with being a consumer in America, like, you know, needing customer support. I'm not familiar with this in, you know, as an enterprise company in Germany, for example. Like, this is something we need to research. Speaking of localization and global users, you now have, I think, four to five offices where your team is based? Yeah, we have Melbourne, Vancouver, San Francisco, Toronto, and Dublin. So how do you keep all these folks connected? Slack has a very tight culture, but these people in the ancillary offices across the globe really plugged into that. Um, Slack helps. Slack helps quite a bit. We have several channels in Slack, obviously, where we do our work. We have one channel that's just CE random. So everybody in the customer experience team is our own little subset of random, which is the social channel for just you know chatting or whatever. We have a program called CE Meets, and two random people get paired up. I think it's monthly, biweekly, I don't remember. Periodically, two people get paired up for a half hour and it's just like, hey, you're both on CE, why don't you talk? And it's always people from different regions. So like, you're never gonna meet someone in the same office. If you're Dublin, you'll get, you know, someone in Toronto or Vancouver, San Francisco, but probably not Melbourne because that time overlap is brutal. It's actually okay right now, it's just an hour difference, but when everybody switches daylight saving time again, it goes to three hours, it's pretty tough. Anyway, we have, you know, people mixing that way. And then we have the specialist groups, obviously, where people in different regions are focused on the same thing. So our enterprise learning specialist, for example, is in Australia. And our enterprise bug boss is in Vancouver. So they work together to sort of execute on all the CE needs for the enterprise support product. Very cool. And you mentioned moving up market. Mm-hmm. I'm curious, how does Slack decide what level of service to offer to their customers? Do you guys have different levels for different segments? We don't offer different kinds of service. So, you know, everybody gets basically the same people with the same amounts of knowledge. We prioritize. Um, so somebody on the enterprise plan, for example, we have much tighter SLAs on getting back to them. And uh, that's that's about it, which is really um how quickly do we respond and how tight is that feedback loop and you know, are we passing it around the sun? Um, so it's substance is the same. It's uh, really rapidity. But so our mean turnaround time is under an hour. So it's not super, it doesn't make a ton of difference. Uh, it only makes a difference when we have a super busy day and we have to start prioritizing those enterprise customers over the people who are running like a My Little Pony conference or whatever. But in general, like, yeah, everybody gets gets the same. In the in the news lately, it's become apparent that Slack has some major uh, challengers entering its product category at the enterprise level. What role do you see your customer experience team playing in making sure that Slack remains a, a piece of workplace software that teams can't live without? Yep. Obviously, we're totally aware of what's going on in the market, but it's exciting. Um, as a company, it's great. It raises the awareness overall that there are new workplace collaboration tools and that the way that we work together is changing. It's an exciting time, I think, to be in this space. We think that there is plenty of room for a lot of people to play in this space. We are completely focused on how we enable you know people to collaborate and work effectively together. As far as my team specifically, So much of that is just continuing to uphold our part of the trust and all the work that the team around us has done. Because as you go up market, these deals take longer, more people get involved. Like these relationships are forged between the customer and Slack. And it's our duty to continue to uphold those relationships so that, 
we have a continuation of service that unlike a, you know, somebody coming in and putting in their credit card number where they, we never talk to them, there are pre-existing relationships and it's up to us to uphold them. Well, at this point for me, it's pretty difficult to imagine a work day without Slack and just gives me anxiety of emails over and over again. So uh, we're obviously really excited about what you guys are doing. Thank and you. Thanks again for joining us today. Hey, thank you for having me. I hope you enjoyed our chat with Ali Rail. Our podcast archive is bursting with insightful conversations with everyone from onboarding expert Samuel Hulick on building better onboarding to UX designer and author Jake Knapp on making time for your most important work. And of course, we have new episodes every Thursday. Speaking of which, see you next week for more Inside Intercom. This is Inside Intercom.